Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... The second part in a legendary story on September 7th, 1996, an iconic musician was killed. And to this day, the rumors of the identity of his killer circulate like wildfire. A case where even the most in-depth coverage seems to only scratch the surface. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Tupac Shakur was born on June 16, 1971 in New York City, but in his adolescence, moved out to Baltimore, Maryland, and then, just four years later, out to California where he established himself as a West Coast boy. Living a life that was and is worthy of the silver screen, Tupac soon established himself as one of the most influential rappers of all time, a career that bridged both music and film, all while addressing the social issues plaguing the inner cities and more specifically, the black youth that lived in those cities, becoming a symbol of activism and the fight against inequality. His lyrics contained depth and commentary on the social issues he felt passionate about in a time where that wasn't the norm in mainstream rapping, and by the time he was in his early 20s, had achieved a level of superstardom that some can only dream of. 
He lived a life, though short, that goes beyond the short form of this podcast. But it was his death that brought him and his music straight into the middle of one of true crime's biggest mysteries. On September 7, 1996, Tupac and Marion Suge Knight, head of Death Row Records, attended the Bruce Seldon versus Mike Tyson boxing match at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. When the match was over, one of Suge's associates, Trayvon Lane, noticed a member of a rival gang, Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, hanging out around the lobby. Earlier that year, a few members of Baby Lane's gang, the Southside Crips, had attempted to rob Trayvon at a footlocker. So when Tupac was informed of his presence, he walked over and asked if he was from the South and punched Baby Lane in the face, knocking him straight to the ground. The rest of his entourage began assaulting Baby Lane, and soon hotel security broke up the scene, sending each of the men on their way. With the fight over and done with, both the ticketed one and the one in the lobby, Tupac went back to his hotel room to change and mentioned the fight to his girlfriend, Kadada Jones. A woman who, when helping Tupac pack for this trip, asked him if he wanted to wear his bulletproof vest he often sported. He responded in the negative and said that it was too hot. Changed and ready to continue the night, he left Kadada, got into the BMW sedan, and headed towards Suge's Club 662, where he was scheduled to perform to raise money to build a gym for kids needing to escape and avoid any violence. His bodyguards, who were there to keep him safe, were unable to arm themselves that night because the permits had not been filed in time. On the way there, the group was stopped by Las Vegas officers around 11 p.m. because they were playing their music too loud and driving without license plates. Released, the party continued, and as they approached an oncoming red light at East Flamingo Road and Koval Lane, the BMW sedan slowed to a crawl. Stopped right in front of the Maxim Hotel, Tupac began talking out the window to two women who had just pulled up on their left and invited them to go to the club. Just then, at 11.15 p.m., a white four-door late-model Cadillac pulled up to Suge's right side, rolled down the window, and began rapidly firing a 40 caliber Glock into the sedan. 25-year-old Tupac Shakur was hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the thigh, with one bullet, one that may have been stopped by that bulletproof vest, striking his right lung. Despite his own injuries and a flat tire, Suge was able to drive Tupac a mile away where they, again, got pulled over by a bike patrol just steps away from the MGM Grand. The paramedics were called and, after arriving at the scene, rushed both men off to the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada. While they were receiving care, police started investigating the drive-by shooting, but unfortunately, no one wanted to cooperate with the police. And on the occasions that they did go to police with information, like when a death row employee reported receiving calls to the label threatening Tupac, they were too understaffed to follow some of the leads. Back at the hospital, a heavily sedated Tupac was placed on life support machines and later in a medically induced coma as members of outlaws traded shifts guarding his hospital room. Fearful whoever shot him would come back to finish the job. Suge was released on September 8th, but refused to speak to anyone until the 11th. When he finally did speak, he told officers that he, quote, heard something but saw nothing in regards to the shooting. According to the police, that was the end of his cooperation. On September 13th, 1996, 
Tupac Shakur died of respiratory failure, leading to cardiac arrest in the critical care unit of the hospital. He was pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m. after doctors made a number of attempts at reviving him. With his death came a mourning that spread throughout the entire world, mourning the loss of an incredibly talented man, the loss of a 25-year-old, and the loss of a man who seemed to really want to make a difference in the world that he was living in. A man who, according to the police officers in 2014, refused to say who shot him, saying fuck you to the officer as his last words. Because of this and his tight-lipped entourage, the true identity of Tupac's killer remains a mystery. Though, of course, there are more than enough suspects and speculation. The simplest explanation was, of course, that the shooting was a direct retaliation for the fight in the hotel lobby. It seemed like a viable option considering the violence rates between the Bloods and the Crips. Suge, who was a known affiliate of the Bloods, used his posse to fuel this rumor, saying that Baby Lane was the shooter. And, almost a decade later, this theory seemed to be confirmed when Baby Lane's own uncle, Southside Crip boss Dwayne Davies, said that he was in the car and handed his nephew the murder weapon. A statement detailed in the 2011 book Murder Rap, written by retired LAPD detective Greg Kading. This seemed to be the only information willingly released by those involved in the shooting, both from Tupac's side and the opposed. In fact, Yaki Gaddafi, who was riding in the car behind Suge and Tupac that night, was involved in a scuffle with police just two days after the murder. He then left Las Vegas, and when police repeatedly reached out to him after assembling a handful of mugshots, he ignored the calls and seemingly dropped off the face of the earth. He was fatally shot in a housing project in New Jersey just two months after the shooting. A year after his murder, Tupac's mother filed a wrongful death suit against Baby Lane in response to a lawsuit he filed against Suge Knight and Tupac's estate. He was seeking damages for the injuries he suffered during the fight at MGM, both emotional and physical, but was killed on May 29, 1998, before the suit saw a verdict. The estates reached a settlement in 2000 that would have netted him $78,000. Given the tight lips of everyone and anyone involved that night, many were happy to believe that Baby Lane was the shooter. But not everyone is satisfied with that answer. In 2002, the LA Times published a two-part story by Chuck Phillips titled Who Killed Tupac Shakur, based on the completely stalled investigation. From what he could determine, quote, the shooting was carried out by a Compton gang called the Southside Crips to avenge the beating of one of its members by Shakur a few hours earlier. Orlando Anderson, the Crip whom Shakur had attacked, fired the fatal shots. Las Vegas police considered Anderson as a suspect and interviewed him only once briefly. Anderson was killed nearly two years later in an unrelated gang shooting, but then went on to also implicate the infamous beef between the East Coast rappers, including the notorious B.I.G., and several other New York criminals. The connection between Biggie's death and Tupac's is a whole other theory in and of itself, with Detective Kading, who worked both cases, saying that Sean Diddy Combs commissioned Baby Lane's uncle to kill both Tupac and Suge for $1 million. Suge Knight even suggested that he was really the target for the shooting that night, which was an attempt to seize control of death row records. According to many, he ran the record label like a mafia boss, so it wasn't hard to believe he could have been a target 
fueling the bi-coastal beef and keeping the LAPD on his payroll. In a second article written by Chuck Phillips, he outlined the missteps taken by police, including their discount of the fight that occurred at the MGM hours before the shooting and failing to follow up with the rest of his entourage, as well as a lead about a white Cadillac spotted just after the shooting, allowing for the killer or killers to escape. The LAPD has simply written off this case as one that is impossible to solve and, according to the book Labyrinth, claimed that local politicians didn't want them to solve the case to avoid a, quote, OJ-style circus. To that, a friend and collaborator of Tupac's went on the record saying that law enforcement knew what happened, adding, this is America, we found bin Laden. But as of right now, it's unclear if we will ever know what really happened to Tupac Shakur. Shakur. 